Welcome to the 22nd episode of the Loose Threads podcast, a show about the intersection of fashion technology and commerce. Joining me today is Josh Udashkin, the founder of Raiden, an emerging smart luggage company that marries the best of luggage, hardware, and software into the ultimate toolkit for travel. We really were a product company and wanting to be the best product, not about price, not about how many million influencers are schlepping it around. Like, that's fake. Josh founded the company after he realized that there were few new and dominant entrants into the luggage space in almost 50 years, and bringing a younger and more modern perspective to the entrenched industry might be a crucial differentiator. We had a great talk about the challenges of integrating hardware and software, how Josh architected Raiden as a true product company, how he decided on the right distribution strategy and move far beyond a strictly direct-to-consumer business model, and how he's planning to build the company for the long term. Here's my talk with Josh Udashkin. Tell me a bit kind of about yourself, your background, and all that pre-Raiden days. Yeah, so I grew up in Montreal, and I went to law school and business school in Toronto. I studied kind of political science, economics, nothing to do with retail, but I think my whole life I've been a very serious consumer, and I think really actually as much interested in the business of it, kind of always wanting to talk to salespeople in the stores and understanding kind of the nuance of how to sell something and what was working and how trends translated actually into revenue. And so unfortunately, I didn't have the guts early in my career to kind of go after, you know, my passion and I did the more expected thing. And I practiced law in New York starting about almost 10 years ago at this point for a couple of years, but was really, really miserable and desperate to get out. So then I actually was fortunate, kind of got a second chance at a very big discount to my salary to go back up to Montreal, but really to travel almost around the world and work for Aldo Group, the footwear company. And they had at the time about 1,800 stores. I think they're probably closer to 2,500 today. And I ended up in a role there where I was working on international strategy in a couple different regions and markets across franchising, omni-channel, which is you know wholesale, a lot of dot-com things. It was the era when Zappos was being copied by all the rocket internet companies across Europe and really trying to onboard there. It actually really did play into some of the strategy stuff we're doing at Raiden. And I worked at Aldo for two years and then kind of had the light bulb moment around Raiden and moved back to New York about three years ago to kind of get working on the prototypes and get the team together. And so talk to us about kind of what that light bulb moment was and how it came about. I think it really started with traveling so much. I was always on the road, always standing around a carousel. I myself am actually not really a samurai packer, so I always do check a bag. So just kind of standing around the carousel and really kind of shocking, you know, not being really able to recognize any product other than probably things coming out of Ramoa. I would even argue that Tumi isn't that, you know, easily recognizable. Samsonite's merchandising is really to make different products for different retailers and different regions. And, you know, their brand perception in one market is very different from another. It's a great company, but from a merchandising standpoint, you know, a little bit all over the place. And I said, hi, this is interesting. It's something that bridges the function and fashion gap. And I just don't see the next brand kind of of the future for people of my generation. And I I wouldn't go so far as to say, uh, you know, I'm obsessed with building kind of a millennial brand or anything like that. I don't really look at it that way. I just felt like there was nothing modern at this point 
All three of the companies I mentioned are essentially heritage brands. Toomey's approaching 50 years, Ramoa's 118 years, Samsonite's 100 years. So nobody's really looked at this in a really, really long time. And, you know, having worked at a big company myself, realized, oh, you know, some younger voices don't necessarily always come to the forefront of kind of modern needs. Let me see how I can do this. And pretty quickly, I went on LinkedIn. I actually connected with two guys out of Toomey. One was in marketing and one was head of production at the time. And I would go almost every week to the Marriott Marquis in Times Square, which is where they were comfortable meeting me because it was kind of a central place with internet and they could take the train in from New Jersey. And I was learning kind of as much as I could. This is going back three years ago already about the luggage business. You talked a bit about kind of those three brands being on the high end. Is it fair to say that basically everything below that was just kind of generic private label? Exactly. So I felt like it was such a fragmented market. The global stats are all over the place. I think the reported numbers between kind of 25 and $32 billion a year in rolling luggage product across polycarbonate and soft side. That's a really big category. Even if you think about a product that people buy every three, five, seven years, there's no real you know, repurchase rate that's published. There's a lot of opportunity for a new brand to be built there. And what I liked about it was I felt like, unlike in apparel or footwear or anything else, I felt like there was a real opportunity to build something kind of category defining. For us, you know, that involved industrial design, packaging, branding, entire kind of user experience around customer service, retail display, everything else. I will say it never involved, even from my earliest deck, kind of a direct-to-consumer model. I'm not really an ideologue kind of about retail and about distribution. I think when everything's going to be collected, I think that taking that model across every single vertical is not going to really actually work out financially. That was never really part of our pitch. Our pitch was really about the product. I think we were obsessed with making an amazing product at what we felt was a fair price. So I don't think it's about, you know, for us, like a coach price or whatever else people are saying. I think we felt you know, the luxury guys were, you know, north of $500. That's a big commitment to make. Luggage is somewhat of a consumable. It gets dinged around. It gets beat up. You want something that's going to keep its shape and looks and everything, but let's call it what it is. I mean, it's not a pair of headphones sitting nicely on your head or even an Apple watch that's going to sit on your wrist and not get banged around. You know, one of the reasons for all that private label is, you know, there are a big group of people that still feel I'll buy one and throw it out after right. two trips. I'm always intrigued by the people that have their like pristine Louis Vuitton. I guess they fly private. <laughs> but even on commercial, just like someone that would take what is probably what, like a multi-thousand dollar suitcase. Uh, yeah, I think $3,000. Through story. that sort of like wear and tear. Yeah. Also maybe shows the prospect that people do want to identify with something and not just another black piece of commodity. Totally agree. I would say one is I think funnily enough, you know, Vuitton and Prada both started actually as luggage companies. So I'm not sure if, you know, some of the new brands today will go on the same 200-year evolution from becoming that to, like, major luxury right. goods Weren't houses? those trunks mostly? Trunks, okay. yeah. Like Goyard not, as well. Yeah, and... not rolling luggage. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, same concept, right? Right. A place to hold your shit while you're traveling. So it's funny. Sometimes I laugh at kind of how all those companies started and now they sell handbags right. and wallets and all and kinds of things. It's a circle, things. right? Yeah. But, you know, to that point, I did feel like you didn't have to spend 1000 or 2000 or whatever it was to get something great. I also started to develop a thesis around kind of other categories and the way people were shopping. I looked at Uniqlo. You know, Uniqlo, for me, felt like almost a consumer electronics apparel company 
wherein you produce a couple of constructions of things. So you produce, you know, ultralight jackets and certain types of undergarments and, you know, you use tech materials and then essentially it's unisex. So the men's product and the women's product is almost identical or 90% of it is. They do some stuff for kind of fun seasonal PR stuff, but most of, I think, the base of the business is that. And then they kind of sell it like consumer electronics, lots of colors, lots of sizes and kind of easily predictable cycles. So I started looking at like what categories were really turned almost more into that type of product line. You look at Beats, you know, that is category defining, you know, white stringy headphones to uh, fashion headphones. I looked at Fitbit. How did that change the way we look at even a watch today? And I felt like, oh, luggage is an interesting category. No innovation. I quickly went to two luggage shows in Germany and in Vegas. And a very smart investor once said to me, this was before I was getting started, take a look at the size of the convention for the industry and take a look at the color of the hair of the people at it. And so there was a lot of gray hair and it was held in you know the biggest convention centers in Vegas and in Cologne. So I said, oh, this seems like it's a good opportunity for someone young to get involved. So what were those early meetings in Times Square like? Like what were you trying to kind of get out of those guys and kind of learn? I didn't want to make essentially private label luggage slapped on with a modern logo and kind of done up in the way all these people cutting out middlemen and that whole story are doing. That wasn't my intention kind of ever. I was trying to understand what actually goes into a top of the line, call it Ramoa or Tumi suitcase, and what are the component parts? What are the different levels of manufacturing? Where do you produce this? What's it going to cost you to make one to see if there was an opportunity to even offer it at the price point kind of I was thinking. And I always kind of stayed within the range. A lot of it was that. And then from there, pretty quickly, it went to the, you know, cliche factory tour mode of of our generation and probably all the ones prior figuring out, okay, who's going to partner with me to make this? We were lucky. I met a lot of different people. We decided to produce in a higher end factory that actually produces all the hard side for Toomey and most of Samsonite's, mostly their European product or everything else that's kind of a, a little bit of a higher grade, because we also knew that we were deep into kind of the electronics and that it would need to get integrated in a kind of higher quality facility. Is luggage hard to make? Of things to manufacture, what's the kind of complexity level that maybe traditional luggage is at? And then obviously, I'm curious a bit kind of how the electronics piece came in and then does that change? Yeah, things? so I think luggage is not hard to make. And I think anyone who walks into a TJ Maxx or any of these other places will tell you that. I think there are not that many factories actually that produce A-grade quality luggage. It's surprising and probably speaks to how few brands there are at the top of that pinnacle. So, you know, Ramoa has their own factories in Germany and in Canada, but everyone else, you know, uses other people's facilities to produce. So if you really do want to make something at a higher quality factory, but that can also give you scale. So we're still not talking about kind of made in Italy, you know, thousand dollar bags here. There aren't that many, but if you go to Northern China, I think you can find a thousand different factories that are, you know, pumping out the rest of the $30 billion of the market in product. I will say the harder thing to achieve with Raiden, you know, getting a bag to talk to, you know, an iPhone at the time, we're on Android now too, but that's the bigger challenge. That's not an easy thing to do. Putting a battery in it, easy. Getting kind of the whole IoT thing up and running, which involves simultaneous mobile, firmware, hardware development, more challenging. And I think we can kind of see the graveyard of all those Indiegogos attest to that. You know, nobody ever gets their product on those yeah. forums or whatever. And I think the reason is it's really hard and can be very expensive. I happen to have been 
lucky that the company Quirky was going through a difficult moment, and I was able to bring on their chief of staff and their, I think, a good number of their people in Hong Kong, just as I was kind of gearing up to really build beyond the prototypes. I was now into kind of manufacturing, and that really helped us kind of get where we were going much faster. And so how did the electronics piece come to be a part of this? So it was primarily driven by like kind of a utility moment. I was so obsessed with kind of Fitbit and it was the year before Fitbit IPO'd, but Fitbit was one of these interesting quiet companies that I don't think anybody realized what was going on because they weren't doing some of the sexy direct to consumer, you know, in fast company everyday stuff. But, you know, really starting in 2010, they were doubling and tripling size every year through channel. And I think what I was so interested in about Fitbit was two things. One is how the relationship to the customer can build a brand. So I was obsessed with the idea of having customer service built into an app platform because luggage is prone to damage and everything from where's my order if you're in e-commerce all the way down to like, what's my warranty? How do I work this? I was so interested in that as like a back-end part of the business. There was a, a huge problem with like luggage repair and people waiting from what I heard weeks and months of time to get a Samsonite, a Tumi, or even a Ramoa fixed. And so some of those companies sometimes deliberately make that process difficult in order to get you to just buy a new one. So I was like, oh, there must be something there. How do I like create kind of a closer bond with the customer knowing that they could reach me at all times? There's a cost to that too. I'm not telling you pie in the sky that there's not an expense there. But I felt like that was a big brand builder. And it is coming true because that's the primary way people communicate with us even before they receive their product today is the app. So that was the first piece really was the connection to the customer. I also think it was building a network. I think I had been told for years about, you know, the value of these direct to consumer brands being that they know their customers so well because they have their email address. Well, luggage isn't an LTV business. So, you know, I hope people love the product and they buy a carry-on and a check bag or maybe their family gets one, but you're not really looking at like repeat purchase behavior, month to month, you know, subscription style or cosmetics or any of these other categories. So when you do sell somebody something, you know, you need to make enough dollar margin to pay, you know, all your expenses. But what I thought was so interesting there was if I could get people to pair their bags to the app, not only would I know them and be able to service them and provide them with other utility around weight and some other features, but over time that network grows. And when you look at the value of you know, successful IoT businesses, that's actually very valuable is the idea that you have all these people with a downloaded app on their phone that you can communicate with in a more live way. So direct consumer businesses definitely have value in that they know their customer. But boy, you know, IoT businesses seem like they're going to be way more valuable because there's more immediacy to it. An email address is just an email address. In fact, we kind of see that customers have created all these email addresses just to buy stuff. And so they're not really using them as kind of a means of connecting with the brand. They're using them just to collect spam. In our case, I think, and obviously we'll see as this plays out, but I think we've seen it with Fitbit is that the network effects start to kick in once you sell more hardware. And so now they're up to like 50 million people, and I think it's like 20 million daily actives. There's a lot of interesting things you can start to do around that type of actual community. And I assume that's where this is somewhat headed. Yes. Are there aspirations to monetize the network in some way? So I don't think we're really looking at monetization and the you know subscription fees and everything else. When we think about our community, 
I think we're looking at providing travel utility, delight, gamification, keeping people interested while they're on the road. We're looking at doing that through the app and keeping people engaged. We have people using the app for, you know, two minutes each time, kind of they're in the packing part of the user experience or kind of at the airport. How do we serve our customer for a longer period of time to tell them things about their trip, to delight them, to connect them? I mean, not the sky's the limit that's cheesy, but I think that's the opportunity here to say we have every piece of it figured out. We don't, but we are investing in the right team of people to do that. We're not in the, you know, market, 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 acquire customers forever mode. I think we're really trying to build a true product company and not just a marketing company. We talked a bit about kind of the prototyping part, but how long did you take to prototype? Oh, almost a year. Okay. Yeah. I flew back and forth was flying all over the place. Actually, I was flying to San Francisco. I had people in LA. I had mobile developers in Montreal. That's a great city for mobile development if you're on a budget. And then I was going to Taiwan, yeah, almost every month and kind of shipping prototypes back. So we went through a lot of different designs. You know, luggage is beyond just the electronics. And I think people get caught up with that. But you got to get something lightweight that rolls quickly, that's durable, that hopefully creates some type of iconic look. In our case, I think it's the nothingness. The other bags look like Muji bags, or they look like Ramoa, or they look like everything else. I think we tried to kind of go with this clean, blank canvas. And it's really more about, you know, the traveler than necessarily, you know, our product. And that can create icon over a long period of time. And I think that's kind of what happened with Ramoa and the grooves. And we see it across kind of the the shape. But I think really the design was driven by construction. So what is the shape of this product and how is this shape going to be noticed from elsewhere? There definitely are other versions of kind of smart luggage, quote unquote, out there. But it seems that there's a lot of restraint kind of put into the product in terms of what you're actually putting in, not just become this technocratic product for nerds that are kind of like you know, find all these equations out of their stuff. I know some of the entrepreneurs behind them and they're really, you know, nice people and they've worked probably, you know, as hard as we have. So no offense to any of those projects. I think they come at it from a engineering brain. The solution, not a problem. The solution, not a problem. And so they didn't really take, I think, enough time to talk to people in the luggage business or even look at any other product. So they were, you know, really obsessed with the technical achievement of getting the bag to talk to their phone and putting a microwave and a pizza oven in your luggage, which you don't really need. And those make for really amazing. I I can't count the number of times I get, you know, one of these robot luggage videos sent to my inbox. And when those things, they make for really great videos. I don't think they ever actually ship to customers. They're heavy. They're not going to get through TSA. I mean, there's 9 million reasons. So we didn't really want to get into gimmickry. We wanted to just create something cool. So, I mean, one of the interesting, like a trend out there is a lot of these modern brands are focused on kind of single products or a single product with, you know, a few SKUs underneath. It's interesting with maybe you look at something like Allbirds, right, which is has like a repeat business, a single shoe, at least for now. But you you alluded to before kind of the lack of LTV in the business. How did you kind of approach that? And also, I guess, was it different because luggage has sizing, right? You know, it's either fits on the plane, under the plane. Like, how did that all kind of fit into being a single SKU business? Well, so, so I would say, and it's turned out to be true, the return rate's quite low. I mean, provided you've made something decent. So we don't have a lot of the apparel problems of 30, 40% return rates, what that'll do financially to your business. If you have that much inventory out at one time and you know 40% of it's coming back, we don't have that problem. I think we have, and I'm proud of it because I think anybody who you talk to that talks about how inexpensive their product is, you should be worried about whether your warranty is going to be worth anything because they'll still be in business. But we have good dollar margin in the product. You know, I think there's been a bit of a shift in thinking over the past couple of years, we've seen it with the mattress category. 
higher average order value businesses seem to be very exciting, even if there is no lifetime value, Mm -hmm. because the idea that I hate the word customer acquisition, so I'm not going to use that word, but that's the more common. And we don't acquire our customers. No brand should be acquiring customers. That works really well in software. It doesn't work that great, you know, in brand. I don't think you'll see Gucci or Prada or any of these amazing brands saying they acquired somebody to buy a handbag. But I think if you're talking from the finance point of view, if you have a lot of dollars potentially to bring somebody in and then you have some left over, you need to make money every time you sell something and you can't sustain losses over many periods of time. I think the thinking is you either can be something with a long lifetime value, so you'll spend 200 bucks up front to get somebody to buy a razor you know, for the next 10 years, or you can spend a relatively large amount of money to get somebody to buy something that has a higher checkout purchase. Everybody in the middle, I think, is getting a little bit hurt because there's no guarantee that you'll buy a t-shirt from one person one month and then you'll go to somebody else the next month. I think kind of in that, I'll call it 50 to $200 range, it's really hard to sell kind of any of these types of businesses because there's just not enough dollars to acquire a customer and have any left over to pay, you know, overhead, marketing, everything else. So we'll see. Talk a bit about kind of where kind of the branding, the aesthetics came from and kind of what that development process was like. Yeah. So we kind of had this very purist, we want to be the apple of, I think that's how we started. So really, if you accept the construction, if you accept the form factor, it's really about choice of color and size. And that really drove a lot of our early branding. I I actually worked with somebody from Apple. And it was really about kind of very simple, easy to understand product. You really got what the weight was. You got what the tech did. You got the whole thing very, you know, simply as far as part of the packaging and the website and the app. And so that really drove it. It was mainly around utility. And I think our tagline was, and we'll be changing, but, you know, as the case for better travel, really taking all the guesswork out of it, which is this case will fit in your overhead bin. It's not going to be something where you're not going to get through the sizer bars. You'll know that you're underweight before you go. You have no excuse for having to wrestle around your things when you get to the check-in. It was really around removing all of those terrible travel experiences, and that really drove a lot of the branding. But pure, clean, spare, everything else, that's the place we started. It was very specifically not a lifestyle brand. I don't believe people should be starting out these types of companies showing a lifestyle that is invented. How can you have a lifestyle on day one around your product unless you're faking it? So we really were a product company and wanting to be the best product, not about price, not about how many million influencers are schlepping it around or doing whatever. Like that's fake, especially if you're new. And then also very unproven to correlate to any sustainable business. Right. So like, you know, the lifestyle around a company like Ralph Lauren and all the imagery created by Weber in the 80s and everything, but you're talking about 15 years of development of... It's earning. It's earned, right? Yeah, exactly. It's earned. I feel like there's this assumption among investors and everybody else that you can just invent it. Or buy it. Or buy it. And I think that works in the short term. So I think that like... Name a new company that if you spend a million dollars a month, you're not going to generate some sales. You have to be pretty terrible at it. But I think over time, the customer gets smarter and all the fun tricks of the trade about reviewing yourself and all this stuff, it starts to come out. If you don't keep working on your product, eventually you lose. And so a lot of the companies, you know, we admire, you know, we look at Yeti, which nobody even knew about until six months ago, me included, but obviously now a fanboy. It's like, okay, that's 10 years of 
refining their brand. They have the right to sell other SKUs now because people really respect their original offering. They've earned that right, not bought it. And so I think that really guides a lot of our thinking about kind of our product and potential SKU expansion down the road. So you spent about a, almost a year developing the prototype. Then kind of what was the launch and all that like, if there even was one, and kind of how do we get up to today, I guess? Yeah, so I don't believe in pre-selling anything. So I think it's audacious to ask your friends or strangers to give you money if you've never been proven to have sold anything. And that sucks, and it's kind of a shitty thing for me to say because I also know how hard it is to get money to do these things. So there's a really tough, you know, balance there. So I'm not really into like hype for hype's sake. If you buy my product and you don't like it, you could return it, you know, within a 48-hour period and get your money back. I'm not into like loaning money for multiple months from strangers that I don't know. That would probably give me anxiety. So we made a decision, or I I did for sure, that we were going to launch on one day and we were going to ship the same day and we got a launch big because you know we've been incubating this for however many months or years at this point and if we don't have a big launch it's going to be hard to get off the ground i was super fortunate that one of our angels and a good friend of mine had a very large retail space in soho it was kind of between tenants so we knew we had a period of time it ended up being longer than we even anticipated so i got a very good deal for six months on the old Sea Wonder space mm-hmm. and really wanted to build a retail experience that wasn't a luggage store. So I don't believe in luggage stores. Like I think that's a concept that's gone away. We've seen kind of innovation and all these chains go out of business and there's a reason for that. People don't buy this stuff all the time. Yeah, they're and so depressing. They're depressing, yeah. right? So like, you know, essentially they can look like, you know, a bunch of boxes essentially with wheels on them in kind of a crappy store. So I was like, okay, well, if I'm not going to launch a luggage store, I have to do something crazy. So we built a 365-bag coliseum of floating white Raidens, and we had a lot of video content, and then we took the front of the store and we essentially turned it into a massive charge bar because the bag charges your iPhone or your Android phone, and we kind of tried to make it a meeting place so people could just loiter in Soho, get a demo, you know, no pressure conversion. We really looked at it more as like a guide shop as far as being a new brand. And then, yeah, that was almost a year ago, and we've had a great first year. The other thing that that served to do, if there's any type of advice here, is it was a great investment because we knew that we wanted to work with certain retailers, especially, you know, in the early part of the brand who never, I laugh with them now because they all say, how come you didn't call me, you know, when you were developing this? It's like, you would never take my phone call. Like, that's obvious. Like, no one's going to fund your line anymore. You know, that's one of the big things that's changed around all this capital is like, it used to be like Calvin and Don and all these people would go to, you know, Bloomingdale's and Bloomingdale's would write them a PO and then they could produce. Today, it's like, you need to raise money to do that to then get the attention of these people. They used to act like apparel VCs Mm -hmm. in a strange way. But I'll say we had thousands of retailers reach out to us, no joke, from kind of all four corners. And then we decided to work with a select group in the States, and that's continuing. Today, we're going to open almost 40 shop-and-shop concepts across Bloomingdale's and Nordstrom's by the end of the year. So, Because, again, opening mono-brand luggage stores or pop-ups doesn't really make that much financial sense. Interesting. And so it sounds like you had wholesale in mind from the beginning from, as you were alluded to, not to be just a D2C thing. Sure. How did that kind of formulate itself? And then, yeah, I guess, how do you look at that dual strategy in a way going forward? One is I was told by everyone I knew who was in this business already that the costs of digital and out-of-home advertising 
are only going up over time, especially as... They have to get bid up, right? I've yeah. been trying to think about this for a while, and it's like, if everyone's bidding, isn't the price just going to rise? And incumbents are waking up to it, and they're hiring young people, and those people are bidding up the prices because they're realizing, you know, if we only stick to our traditional stuff, and it's not to say, by the way, I'm not anti-print or any of these other traditional things, but these guys have way bigger budgets than any of these new companies will, so they're getting in on the game. And so people said to me, oh, you know, Warby... 2010 to 2012, like the first two years, you know, Facebook was free. So, you know, that was how they built the beginnings of that brand, from what I understand, without insane amounts of capital and this crazy saturation. I also really, and saying this maybe makes you sound lame, but I want it to be cool. And I think chasing people around the internet, if you're trying to have anything to do with fashionability, is lame. And bombarding them with ads every 30 seconds sucks. You know, you're trying to be cool, but then you're also stalking people. So it's like, have you ever had a girlfriend or boyfriend that like is stalking you and it's really hard to pretend to be cool when- Trying to sell you luggage, yeah. Yeah, when you're getting stalked. And so I knew that one of the ways to like, you still need to hit your numbers. So I'm not telling you I want to be so cool. I want to sell two pieces of luggage. But I know that every retailer, especially the ones that are surviving and, you know, what, what we hear is Chernobyl 2017 retail Chernobyl has their own customer base. So when you're talking about a Bloomingdale's or Nordstrom, you're talking about millions of emails, millions of eyeballs- Instant awareness if they support you and your brand, Netta Porte, Mr. Porter, Farfetch now, you know, where it's Selfridges. Why would I not work with these people? These are not going to be brand degrading experiences. These are great retailers. They still are great retailers. Sure, some of their shift is going online and we're selling very well online at all these places, but it seems almost foolish to just go it alone, drop tens of millions of dollars in our category. I'm not saying in every category, but in our category into acquisition marketing to do what? So I right, call, when someone's done the work for you in a way. Right. So I call like almost all those type of things like Bernie Madoff LLC startup, which is essentially becomes a Ponzi scheme where negative unit economics multiplied over time just create more negative unit economics. And I knew that there's no way that any of the people who'd already been successful, some things don't change. You know, they weren't successful by losing millions of dollars in their first year, even though the speed you know, it took them a longer time to get there. So we're kind of in between. We're going fast and we're not, not an e-commerce business. Sure, we have a website and we sell a lot of product direct. But why would I cut off an opportunity to reach millions of other people, both domestically and internationally, in a very capital efficient way by not doing wholesale? Yeah. So that was like obvious to me from day one. Aldo taught me that. Everybody taught me that. And I, again, I'm not an ideologue. And I think people who sit around in rooms analyzing this stuff should know that, that real people in retail know you got to be omni-channel. Like you, right. you, there's never been an electronics company in the history of time that their whole way along they were direct consumer. You can open stores and take back more margin if you've built brand over 20 years. You see Apple doing that. You see even in apparel, you see Montclair, Canada Goose is now getting into it. But that's because there's so much brand awareness that the store is instantly going to have people in it. Raising a lot of money to do that just doesn't make that much sense. I mean, to me, it's always seen that there's minimum a 10-year time horizon to build a brand that is lasting and valued today. And I guess when when capital comes into play, there are just different expectations there, right? Which could be three years, could be five years, could be seven years, whatever it is. And there really aren't shortcuts. Like There are shortcuts in the short run. Right. But then what happens is you have to take in ever-increasing amounts of money and hopefully if you know it's going well for you, ever increasing valuations. But everyone giving you money doesn't expect to get it back at that valuation, right? They need you to multiply your business in size. And I think that's where a lot of people are getting fucked 
for, for lack of a better word, because there's not a ceiling in so far as, you know, business can be any size. Eventually, the more stuff you sell or wherever it is, but there should be a little bit of reality about, to your point, the timeline of, of doing this and shipping product to people, getting feedback, continuous improvement, everything else. Once you saturate the internet and a couple of like cool cities. Or subway cars or, or L sub- trains. Yeah, exactly. Okay, what next? Yeah. No, like seriously, what next? One of the things that really struck me was like the biggest online player in luggage is eBags. And I think their revenues are somewhere around 200 million. And that's with hundreds of brands. Toomey does about $40 million a year on their website. And that's with insane amounts of awareness, a very high AOV, the product's expensive, a network of 150 stores. So not to say we couldn't be way bigger than 40 million, but if I only went online right. and I only had one store and I popped up every hour somewhere else with you know some concept, how big could I really get that way? I don't think that big. It's also interesting, too, because there's only so much equity to sell in a company, right. right? I mean, do you foresee debt coming back as an interesting instrument for some of these companies that just need you know, endless funding? We use it, which is why we haven't raised as much money as some of our competitors and whoever's listening to them. This probably knows who they are. But one of the things that helps us use it is the fact that we have retail partners. So banks tend to trust right. Nordstrom more than me and more than my direct consumer thing where I'm waiting for people to show up every day. And it's very hard to show the algorithm of how many people are going to show up every day. And so that allows us to take in more working capital style financing. Our biggest, obviously, investments in product and the lead time, and that's what really affects the cash flow cycle for any of these businesses. So having Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's, Amazon, all these people together collectively giving us POs and selling a lot of volume of the product really smooths that out and helps us take on other types of financing to grow to a different place wherein taking equity may be interesting, but it would be because the people are willing to put in potentially more money at a reasonable valuation to grow the business to the next kind of phase. And I think when you look at that, that is really how Yeti and all these types of business, Montclair, Canada Goose, I'll go back through all of them. That's the only way they could. So the first couple of years, they're working with department stores and they're working with other people to build their brand. They get it to a reasonable size. Then they take on a capital partner that can really help them scale. Otherwise, it's kind of like junk food. You're just spending on marketing, 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 marketing acquiring the same customer for an LTV of one product, you hit a wall. And we've seen it, like, I don't know how many times we have to see this, but we keep seeing it over and over and over again. It's the same story over and over again. Fancy office, too much money on marketing, leaky funnel, like, it's all the same TechCrunch story. Yeah. So to your point, there's only so much to sell. And I always go back and, you know, you got to hire people that believe in you and your vision and everything else or partner with them because they're really, these are your employees. And I really got into this business to do something interesting, have something to say, you know, in the category, build an amazing product, et cetera. But I also got into it to mainly work for myself or at least kind of guide my own destiny around this if I was so lucky. And I think there are some other people who are working in committees to build these things. You know, these aren't founder-led businesses anymore. Talk a bit about kind of the supply chain, the manufacturing lead times. Like, what does it take to put basically from idea to having luggage that I can put clothing in? So I call like 98% of the luggage business like a Mr. Potato Head business, which is you pull the carry handles, the wheels, the zipper, the shell, everything out of a catalog, and you make it all work together with like an hour of industrial design and doesn't lead to a great product, but who cares, you know, for whatever. And then 
you order the parts and they're probably actually all sitting in a storage unit in one of these factories and you can just start selling. So you make a logo and, and that's it. We went the hard way and some days I think, oh God, why did I go the hard way? Because it really affects lead time. But because we essentially manufactured every single part in the bag for our industrial design, which not only involved very expensive tooling at the beginning of this, but then creates kind of a supply chain wherein, well, if all, you know, 11 subparts and then your electronics and then everything else need to all arrive at a factory on the same day. And one of the other complications is that on our bags that are in different colors, all the parts are color matched. So we're not only doing it across one color, we're doing it across like 14 at this point. So when you get a baby pink Raiden bag, everything is baby pink and therefore you need to keep wheels and everything else. So the entire, you know, process is about five months. But from real true, because we stockpile all those parts now, so we've really shortened the lead time. We're working on like a six to eight week lead time right now. But again, it's all been driven by the volume that we've had in the first year. We were sold out on like about December 20th of our like fourth or fifth PO. Mm -hmm. And so we've been out of stock for like 50 days. Gotcha. That sucks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's even six to eight, whatever that is, it's still not terrible considering they're much worse. It shouldn't happen again unless... We're growing so fast that it's a good, bad problem. It's like a bad problem because yeah. you don't want to miss opportunity and you don't want to disappoint people. It's a good problem because, like, you can't lose by selling everything you plan to sell. Yeah. I guess on that note, like, how did you, and this ties into the financing piece a bit, but how did you think or kind of approach scale in terms of what the expectations you wanted to set for the business? We talked a bit before about kind of the commodity versus a higher end piece, sure. but, but how did you kind of figure that out for yourself and where you would want to operate in? Well, one is it was easy to see some of the ceilings around the category. So Tumi sold last year to Samsonite for about a billion eight. And so you can kind of work backwards with the units there. Ramoa sold this year for eight or 900 million to Vitan. I looked at that and it gave me kind of the realism in the category. And I was like, okay, these are the leaders at the high end. Again, they reach only a certain segment of the population. It's not really mass. Most people are not spending five, six, seven, eight hundred dollars on a bag. But that starts to give you a sense of like where the market is. I definitely was able, I think, to convince our earliest investors how big the category was, that I had a unique point of view, that I felt like smart is the way this and a lot of other things are going, not as a gadget, but smart, actually, intuitively smart, and that building a network would be interesting, and that eventually either the incumbents were going to need to get into the smart business, because it was really where the category was going, or we were going to become a very formidable competitor to them, because there is a certain novelty and utility to the the business. So I don't think that was that hard. I think what was hard was kind of ugh, luggage, but I'll say my friends at Casper and some other, you know, stale industries before me, they actually did that work for me. So ugly was hot, mm-hmm. you know, two or three years ago when I, right. when I was talking to people, the uglier your business was, the more boring it was, the more untouched by modern branding, UX, everything else, the more interesting it might be to build something new. So that really helped me a lot. Yeah, I've always had kind of the thesis that the most boring businesses are often the best. Yeah. And that the press is a very interesting thing that happens, right? If you look kind of inside a lot of the press heavy businesses, they're very much always often not a business. But the boring thing that you kind of just labor away at for years is often where it is. Yeah. It's not that glamorous. No, and sometimes not at all. it's not I could tell you from having been in many luggage factories and shows there's not that much glamour. But I think there's an opportunity there. And I think some of the boring businesses really are on that Again, that line of functionality and fashion. And I think that's where people should look is where can you add some fashionability or some modernity to something that's stale but that everybody has 
And I think that's really where we've seen a lot of winners. And it's not just UI, by the way. And I think people are like, oh, well, if you just skin it a different way, right. can start an insurance company by skinning it. I think there is really a different voice. You know, when peers build something for their peers, it's very different than your dad or your mom building something for you. And I think we're living a little bit too much in a world today where the dad and the mom brands have so much capital and they're so big and they've, you know, they're looking for growth in all kinds of places that they're not really building things the way peers would build for each other. And then last question, just where is the name from? Raiden in Japanese is the lacquered furniture. So it means highly designed hmm. lacquered object. So one is the first bags were glossy and they would look like kind of Japan furniture. That was like the idea. And I know that's a little bit highbrow, uh, intellectual, you know, whatever, East Coast. But actually, I'll say, honestly, as a lawyer, I wanted something that was globally trademarkable nice. from before we launched. I wanted a five-letter .com that I could buy for less than $10,000. So before we launched, the name had no meaning to anybody else in the world. I'm not going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity capital buying whatever .com. I wanted great SEO, kind of more natural instead of having to buy around my name. And so that was a big guiding factor for why I just didn't use kind of a more common phrase. I also feel like it's ownable. Once you build the brand, people know what that is. Our goal is Raiden equals smart luggage, and we're not embarrassed to say smart. I think we're going to make smart cool because smart doesn't equal gadget. And I think that's really where the brand is kind of going. And once you do that, you know, you develop that synonymous thing, you know, that's really where we're going. Awesome, man. Well, thank you for talking. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Loose Threads podcast. Join the newsletter at loosethreads.com and feel free to leave a review on iTunes. We always appreciate it. This episode was edited by George Drake Jr. And my thanks to him for his time on it. Josh was great to talk to because of his pragmatic and non-idealistic approach to every part of Raiden's business. This was especially true about the company's distribution strategy, where it took steps that were logical and didn't worry about prevailing trends. As a result, Raiden seems poised to grow over the long term, rather than being yet another company that quickly rises and quickly falls. We need more companies like that in this industry. We have a great roster of upcoming guests, including Kevin Lavelle of Mizzen of Maine, Olivia Wright of Railier, and Yewa Yang of Pivot. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.